Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Good morning, Ned. Where are you? I'm at the Jew of Italia. I know that. I mean, where are you? Oh, sono a sestolo in montagna. Per il primo arrivo in salita del giro. In an overly ambitious attempt to never stray far fale from the daily goings-on of this year's Giro d'Italia, Ned Bolton and I will be speaking every morning to recap the goings-on of the day before. I'm David Miller, and I'll be hosting this show from the comfort of my home in Girona. And I'm Ned Bolton, and I'm now not so sure that today's finish is an uphill finish. You know what? I think it might be a summit finish. Oh, look to see him, 200 metres, and now he dares to check Taco van der Horn. He's got 100 metres, if not more. The road rises up a little bit, and Taco van der Horn covers his mouth in disbelief. He's done it! Bravo, Taco van der Horn! That is fantastic bike riding! Is Taco van der Horn the best name in cycling, Ned? Well, it's got to be close. I mean, if it wasn't before yesterday, it's got to be close now. But, I mean, there are some great names in cycling. Um, Vladimir Carpets springs to mind, doesn't it? Always amused me. Steel von Hoff. Steel von Hoff. Steel von Hoff. Was, that was, it's a great name, that was David. A great made all made all the better okay. by you, actually, when you pointed out to me some years ago that his passion, his one of his hobbies, is um, he's a welder. Oh yeah. <laughs> Do you remember that? He was a brilliant welder. Yeah. And I well, didn't actually believe- his hobby, Steel van Hoff. You're, you're absolutely right. I didn't believe you. You were teammates briefly, weren't you? And I, I, I was presenting the tour yeah. series, I think, because he was riding as a domestic pro in, in the UK. And I actually checked with him. Said, David, David told me you were a... I think he might have been winding me up, so I'm sorry if I just feel like a fool. You're a welder? And he goes, yeah, yeah. Spend all my, spend all my winters making... Do you know what he used to weld? What his thing that was... It, trailers were his favourite thing, wasn't it? Trailers. He was like the um, the I four Williams of the uh, of the kind of Australian world. It was a Steel von Hoff tra- trailer. But um, yeah, that's a good name. I hadn't thought about Steel von Hoff. That's a really good name. And the other one, of course, that springs readily to mind is Jeffrey Soup. Um, oh, Jeffrey Soup. That was a good one. But Taco. Ramunas Navardauskas. Ramunas Navardauskas. Just, just it's it great fun like to say, actually, isn't a, it? Yeah. yeah, it's yeah. just great fun to say. Mm. We nicknamed him the Honey Badger. But, yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, it's a great name. So it looked, um, what was nice was, so I was going to bring it up. Um, so I think the reason we're talk, talking about Tosh, what's his name? Tosh von <laughs> Taco. Oh, oh, yeah, no, you're thinking Taco. Tosh van der Sander. This is Taco oh, van der Tosh van der Sander. That would be a great head to head sprint, wouldn't it, between Tosh van der Sander and Taco van der Horn? <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I turned on just for the end of it. 
And, oh, um, well, done well done you. Well done you. Good timing. Yeah, just the last 500 meters. Um, I had to turn it on before, um, but then I lost track of time. I had to go and do things. Right. But watching, he did the classic, I, I love this, where you just, you almost, you face palm yourself when he, when he realized he was going to win. Yeah. He just kind of, he did. He was just like, you've got to be kidding me. Yeah. And you could just see the unadulterated joy uh, that he, and just surprise and shock and, just all those emotions. And it's, you very rarely see that experience because, because to be honest, it very rarely happens that a rider kind of who genuinely started the day or actually the whole race, probably thinking there's not a hope or even gets a chance to even fight for a stage win or even make it into a break if I'm lucky to then Amazing. win a stage. Amazing. It's just the stars align. It was awesome to watch. What was the day like? So I, 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 as I said, I just missed it, but I got this riff, this, this absolute riff of messages last night. And, and again, and, and like Taco, you just seem so filled with joy about the race. Yeah, it was contagious yesterday. I mean, you could, like you, you rightly say, David, it was a, it was the way he, it was just, I mean, all, all the mask, all the kind of professionalism, if you like, just drops away. The, the, the notion that this is a professional sport, which it is, just becomes an irrelevance. And, and he just becomes a human being on a bike who's done something incredibly special. Um, no, you're absolutely right. Oh, oh, oh yes, and com- kind of compounded when eventually a microphone was placed in front of him uh, yesterday, oh, kind no. of broadcast right round the world. And of course, he casually drops the f bomb <laughs> on two or three occasions in quick succession because there is this, you know, there is this kind of common misconception amongst uh, people who grow up in other countries, other than the non-anglophone countries, that it's okay to use the f bomb. You know, uh, that it doesn't carry with it the word. So it's very funny. I enjoyed that a lot. Um, but you, but yeah, there was, I mean, the whole day was much better, much more interesting, much more, had much more texture than the day before, which was a bit of a dirge, a bit of a procession. Um, and it had lots of intrigue. I mean, it was a, for a start, there were, there were three, uh, King of the Mountains, mountains. How do you even say that? There were three climbs, there were three categorized climbs. Um, there you on, go. That's how you say it. That's, that's how you say it. I should know that. Um, on the route. And uh, so there was, you know, that had its own intrigue. And um, there was an eight man breakaway. And there was, it's always, breakaways, I think, are always really interesting when you get pairs of riders from one team. And Androni and Aeolo both had two riders. So kind of a, a half yeah. of the eight man breakaway was actually working as a pair, you know. Um, and that, that had you, its own you know very why interesting I just, dynamic. I'll history. instruct you there just quickly, Ned, because um, the reason that happens often is in all the team meetings that are going around on the team buses before the stage starts. And, it, and it's every single day. If there's a chance for breakaway going, the teams that are interested in going in the breakaway will say, look, we need, if it's five riders, we've got one rider in there. If it's over five, we have two riders in there. And it's that kind of, it's this rule of thumb that all bike races go through and all direct sportifs adhere to. Um, but that's every team trying to do it. So the fact that when you do pull off two riders in a plus five man break, it's a, it's a bit of a coup because of the advantage it gives you. It, it does. It's not just the fact that you, you double your chances. It's also the fact that you can use tactics that, that do, you can save one rider, you can cover moves, you can often just psychologically wear down. So the old two rider plus five in, in plus five groups is a, is a golden standard. So Excuse me, I will now let you carry on. Now. No, no, that's that's really interesting. And actually, Sean Yates, who's the director sportif of Aeolo Cometa, um, uh, I mean, I can almost hear him making that speech on the team bus, you know, about the imperative of trying to get two riders in the breakaway. Uh, apparently, and I didn't see much of it because you and I were commentating on, on Paris-Nice 
while it was going on. But they were at Tirreno Adriatico, and it was quite a feature of the way they raced Tirreno Adriatico was to get two men in the break on most days. So they mm. kind of well, well practiced at it. And actually, the way they did it yesterday um, was like uh, Pete Kenyuk riding for B&B Hotels Vitanic Concept because the king fixer. of the... But yeah, they had a fixer. So Vincenzo Albanese, who's who was in the King of the Mountains jersey, <clears throat> had the services of a fixer in young Samuele Rivi, who um, basically paced him across over to the breakaway mm. and then continued to work incredibly effectively in the breakaway throughout the long day. So that was a very impressive ride. And by the way, Rivi is 23 today. It was his 20, the last a, day of his life snapper. as a 22-year-old yesterday. So happy birthday, Samuel Rivi. He was ex- excellent yesterday. And the other team that had, as I said, two riders in the break, was Androni, but the way they got their second rider in the break was really interesting to watch. So straight away, there's more has happened in this race than happened um, the day before. Bless you. Um, Thank you. Uh, Simon Pello, the Swiss, very experienced Swiss rider, he got himself in the original move that was, by the way, instigated by Taco Vanderhorn. He was very much the man who, with Alexis Goujard, kind of forced the breakaway in the Thomas de Ghent role, you know, sitting on the front and, and just kind yeah. of motoring. Um, Pelo got a cross from Androni. And then a really late, the last man to counterattack from the Peloton and try and get in the move was um, the, the youngest man in the Giro d'Italia by some distance, the 18-year-old, would you believe? What? There's, yeah, yeah. there's an 18-year-old in the 18, race. There's an, there's an 18-year-old at the bike race. And if you see him, you, th- you think he's 15 as well. He looks so young. Um, Andriy Ponomar, uh, who is a Ukrainian. That's, a, that's super newer human. Uh, off the scale. I mean, you know, Remco's Uncle Remco to him, isn't it? Um, but Ponomar was stuck for quite a long time in the gap. I'd say 10, 15 minutes on his own. Um, seven riders then, well, actually six, because Pelo was obviously just sitting on. Uh, but the rest were going through and off and sort of building their leads. The, the peloton had shut down and poor old Ponomar was stuck in the middle. Uh, but he didn't, but he didn't, he just plugged on and bit by bit, you know, 15 second gap became a 12 second gap and a 12 second gap became an 11 second gap. And Pello, by the time it got round to his kind of five second gap, Pello started looking round. And then when he was within about 50 meters from the, 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 the back of the breakaway, Pello just sort of dropped off, uh, you know, and allowed him a little bit of help. And the, the two of them oh. just closed, closed the gap. And what was really nice. nice is Pello's a really experienced rider. And when Ponomar finally got across, um, you know, there was a fist bump and all that sort of thing. And actually, not, not just from Simon Pello, but some of the other riders who knew what he'd been doing in the breakaway kind of congratulated him for getting in the move. Um, That's awesome. Our poor little guy. I bet he'd been like 195, 200 heart rate for amazing. however long that took. Just getting there was the win. Yeah. It's like, yeah. that's yeah. probably what it felt like. That's what everyone would have known as well. He's probably burnt all his matches for the day. Yeah. And so it, the rest of the day is now going to be a horrific young man. But uh, well done on getting here. But um, there was a lot to say, so let's not dwell on it too much because there's a lot of detail. But what was really noticeable was that um, when they got to the mountains and the King of the Mountains classification, the intermediate sprints competition, because don't forget, the Giro is super complicated. There is the the, the Malia Ciclamina, isn't there? The points competition. Ah, yes. But but there's also the intermediate sprints competition, the hotspots competition, which is totally separate and doesn't have a jersey, you know. And one ah, intermediate yeah. sprint carries <laughs> points in the points competition, and the other carries, in the, no, both of them carry points in the intermediate sprints competition. <sighs> and one of them carries bonus seconds, and the other one doesn't. You know, so you've really got to know what's happening. You've got to read the, you've got to read the regulations every day. 
Um, and another rider, I'm um, sorry, yes, so Taco Vanderhorn, right? With the benefit of hindsight, when I think back, Taco Vanderhorn was not interested in anything. He just didn't get involved in any of the shenanigans, right? Yeah, old school. Everyone else did, including Alexi Goujar, who looks very un- underpowered, and Lars Vandenberg from Groupama FTJ. So the world's tour riders were, were really in the shadow of the, um, the pro tour riders from Italy. Um, and, uh, and Taco Vanderhorn was the most anonymous of all of them all day long, mm. right? Up until the very end. Mm. Um, but brilliantly, right? There were eight riders up the road. It came to the intermediate sprint that carried points in the points competition, David. And um, Giacomo Nizzolo sprinted. He sprinted and he went off the front of the peloton. The only rider, I mean, completely uncontested. He kind of sprinted really hard, actually. Opened up a kind of, immediately opened up a gap, turned around, went to see who was sprinting with him, realised there was no one and coasted across the line to pick up the minor points, except there weren't any. Oh, no. Of course <laughs> he, there weren't any. He'd sprinted for nothing. The there were eight riders up the road. There were eight, point, eight you know, points for the first eight across the line. Giacomo Nizzolo had sprinted for no reason whatsoever. So that's, oh, no. that was the second day in succession where the peloton, in one form or another, has got the intermediate sprint wrong. <laughs> and did he take it from the peloton or did oh. everyone just like... I don't know. I didn't really see, but I felt for him actually. Because to be fair, it's probably not his fault, is it? But he can't be explained. You know, he's not. He's not riding around with the regulations in his back pockets. He, no. he would have been told that by someone in the car. Oh, it was. It was awkward. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, what else happened? So, well, then the, then the story of the day, really, David, was um, Vincenzo Albanese. Albanese won the first. Mountains uh, prize and he mm, secured the jersey for another day. Well done him. He's doing really well. Looks very, very strong. But the story of the day was what Bora Hansgrohe did do or didn't do and how much help they got or didn't get from the peloton. Um, they were on the front all day um, with... Did they do like um, the, the Milau stage at the Tour de France last year? It, oh, when well, they just got on the front. Day. Well, that, yeah. that was... Um, Slightly different, yeah. It was it was a different kind of a, an effort from Border. It was basically they let the gap go up to six thirty. Then Bodger Bodnar got on the front, and he just sat on the front for hundred kilometres. He got a bit. He got a bit of help with Jimmy from Jimmy Janssen's of um, uh, Alpes and Phoenix, but that was it. That was it. But the rest of the day, it was um, various different riders from from Border Hansgrohe. And when they really started to, to to close the gap in the final sort of twenty kilometres try and bring it down to, well, to catch the break, essentially, and to set it all up for Peter Sagan. They put a rider on the front, the, the young Italian rider, Giovanni Aleotti, um, who's very slight. He's more of a climber, really. But they put him on the front to do a job and to, you know, kind of empty the tank, really, and bring it back to within touching distance. And I don't think I've seen this very often, but I really felt for him because every time he went on the front, um, the time gap, just didn't change. And you could see how hard he was going. Oh, no. He was oh. he was going, and he just didn't seem to have the wattage. You know, it doesn't, didn't look like a kind of rider, to ta- you know, tailor-made for that kind of effort. Um, and it just, it just, I think that was the difference between Sagan winning mm. the stage and not winning the stage. It was Aliotti simply huh. couldn't, couldn't do it. So, in other words, six tired, by then there were about six or five or six riders still up the road five or six exhausted riders going through and off and working well together equals 
one fresh Giovanni Aliotti. And, mm. and that was the and that was the equation. It was really interesting to watch it. This is really interesting. what you're talking about as well. It's, it's a clear. Um, it, it's, it, it shows breakonomics um, in the sense that there's a rule in cycling that anything over five riders, six and above, it becomes very hard to manage because very rarely do you have more than three or four riders riding in the front of the peloton for a prolonged period of time. Um, whereas normally, if you've got five riders, you can count them being three or four pretty strong riders in there that can ride so and the problem is once you get to six or seven and eight especially eight and above it's very difficult to get back because not only have you got more riders riding but they get a longer break in the slipstream so that's one thing so that's why often five six riders is the minimum you're told to let go Uh, above that you're supposed to close it down before if you're trying to if you're trying to win the stage in the peloton behind secondly the new rule of cycling and breakonomics is you don't let anything go over five minutes because if the moment it goes over five minutes, it becomes a lottery. And so the fact that Bora Hansberg didn't start till six minutes 30 and it was eight riders, it was almost, they were, they were playing with fire there. And it goes to show that it worked for Taco. Um, but that those are real simple rules that we follow in professional cycling. And they, they've changed over the years before you could let it go up to 10 minutes, but everyone's so fit now. The five minute rules come into place, but the five plus riders remains a thing, which you've got to, you wouldn't normally let that go to five minutes. So it was a mistake from the Peloton. A lot of the sprinters have been dropped. I mean, there are a succession of climbs and um, Caleb Ewan, Dylan Grunewagen, Giacomo Nizzolo, other guys that, 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 that Winner of the other day, Tim Tim Malia from Alpecin Fenix, he went really early in the points jersey. So a lot of the teams didn't have a sprinter to ride for. That left Border Hansko really isolated. But they got they got they got no help. I mean, at one point the, the um pink jersey was even being threatened by the breakaway in the final and Ineos weren't bothered. They just kind of went, Well, if this comes back together, it comes back together. If not, it doesn't, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um eventually Gavilia's team, UAE team Eretz and Coffee's got to the front, but far, far too late. We're talking the last 10 kilometres when they got on the front and they had to close, at that point, they had to close a one minute 20 gap in 10 kilometres. But again, I guess that that would have been the case because it's only at that point that Gaviria and um, uh, Viviani were confident they could make it to the finish. Because I guess if it's been that hard, a lot of the sprinters teams at the beginning of the day, they're like, we're not controlling today, it's going to be too hard. And Bora hit out. So again, that's probably a mistake of Bora. By losing so many sprinters, they lost the kind of the the solidarity of the peloton. So interesting. So it's just, you know, it's such a tightrope you've got to ride. And also, that's the thing. If they'd not let it go to six minutes 30, they wouldn't have had to ride so hard to bring it back, which means they wouldn't have dropped so many sprinters, which means there would have been more teams to control it and they could have done a faster finale. Instead, the finale got slower. So it meant that there were more sprinters there. So it's really interesting. It's, it's, just re- it's, really, it's really interesting yeah. and quite a hard yeah. calculation, calibration to make. Really hard. It's, no, no, it's simply that case of that's why those rules are in place that you just follow because the moment you don't, it becomes really hard to, to kind of un- predict what's going to happen. So there are these just unwritten rules that are put in place regards monitoring, keeping breaks in place. And they seem so simple and, and almost just layman, like five, five, no more than five people can break. Don't let it get more than five minutes. And that's just the, the rule. And you follow it, and generally it works. You you dare kind of go outside, even by a minute and a half and three riders, and this sort of thing happens. Carry on, Ned. Sorry. No, that's, I've never heard it described like that. That was that was. I'm going to make a note, a mental note of that for a few. I mean, the wonderful thing is, you and I have been commentating for a good few years now together, and I was beginning to think that uh, you know, one way or another, I've seen sort of repetitions of virtually 
virtually every kind of scenario in, in bike racing. But it's not true, is it? <laughs> Stuff happens that is completely anomalous. And even then, given the kind of complication that you just described of how Border Hansgrohe almost shot themselves in the, in the foot by riding so hard, um, even then, nine times out of ten, nonetheless, it's going to work out for them. But what was different yesterday was Taco van der Hoorn. I mean, it was ex- it was Taco an exceptionally it was an exceptionally strong ride um, to defend that time gap in the in the manner that he did when he attacked Simon Pilo, who's the last man uh, with him there. It was a blistering attack on the flat. He saw that Pelo was just I mean, but the, I'm doing that gesture isn't it? the traditional cycling gesture of putting your thumb <laughs> under your chin. I don't really know what it means. It's kind of I know what it means, but I don't know why it means what it means. You know, oh, maybe that's it. It's like an, an abattoir where you hook the, the neck under, you hang the body. Yeah, it's the time-honoured signal to the motor, isn't it? Oh, cool. Like a dead body just yeah. hanging on off a hook. Um, but I, I, then I read the report, and this is what, as you said, it, clearly he played his cards perfectly, um, Taco van der Horn, because when he did go, and I guess this now ties, now I understand why he was then able to take 20 seconds back out of the peloton in those final 20Ks or 15Ks mm. whenever he attacked, because they were then just fried behind because they'd been riding too hard hard and riding running out of teammates. Yeah. Because it's very rare for a day of day that hard for a single rider to be able to take time back out of the peloton in the final kilometers. But that's, it was, that's it was a, a big bunch. Thing, it? it was a big bunch. I mean, right, there were a few riders off the back with, you know, Ewan and Grunewagen, but it was still a big peloton. I mean, any, anyway, whatever. It, it, it was an amazing, it was an amazing day. There was a, there was a brief counterattack on the final, the final sprint of the day with 15 kilometers to go. It was on top of, a, it was a hilltop town. It was a really tough climb. Um, and on that, uh, on that climb, there was a counterattack from uh, Giulio Ciccone and Tony Gallopan. And, um, oh, the ghost. The, well, Did you recognize yeah. him? No, of course I didn't. So AG2R Mondial rider, AG2R Citroën rider uh, counterattacks from the bunch. And normally that's a Tony Gallopan move, isn't it? That's a classic, that's classic yeah. Gallopan with 15 kilometers to go. That's, that's essence of Gallopan. But once again, uh, he just looks, he's got such a generic shape on the bike. And also he's shaved, he's a, he's shaved he's his shape beard. He's shaved his beard. Which oh, was, stop it. Which was really irritating. He shaved it just before the team presentation. So beardless now. And he just... He just recedes back into the backdrop of every other rider in the world. And so I hesitated. Of course, it was Gallopan. <laughs> he does it to me every time. Every time. Uh, uh, it won't be the last time this year either. <laughs> no. He's going quite well. I've got a question, David. I want you to you yes. just explain really well about that. Now, explain this to me, right? Mark Cavendish to some extent. But let's, talk, let's not talk oh, about yeah. him. Let's talk about Caleb Ewan, right? Did you, the way twice he's finished in second place at Milan San Remo, that involves racing hard up the Cipressa and the Poggio. This year, for example, in the Poggio, he was just, he was right up there. He was in second or third wheel on the train of, you know, he was so good on the Poggio. And he's backed that up. And he can do that climb time and time again. And it's a five, what is it, five kilometer climb at around about 6%, 7%. It's hard. It's yeah. a hard climb. And, the, and the Cipressa before that's even harder. Okay. What's the yeah. difference between Caleb Ewan in that one-day race and Caleb Ewan in a stage race where as soon as he goes up and he's out the back, every single time. He, he's one of the first riders to go every single time. What's the difference? Mm. I don't get it. I suppose I suppose there are a couple of things to it. Um, one is if we just talk about the stage race effect, the accumulated fatigue. Um, sprinters generally 
nine times out of 10 don't recover as well as other riders. And that's because they're, they're heavier normally, although Caleb Ewan's smaller. They're, they've got a different morphology as well. They've got slight, although they're still ultra endurance athletes, they're, they're much more fast twitch. They run richer. They require more, more fuel. They don't have the kind of the same endurance recovery capabilities of, of some of the actual pure, more kind of non fast twitch riders, which means in a stage race, they do, they suffer more. They, they accumulate the fatigue. They don't recover. And yet, if you were to take a day like yesterday as a one day race and they were coming in fresh, trained, um, loaded up with fuel, fully, um, tapered off they'd have no problem so that's that's the principal difference i think is the fact that one day races they can come in fully loaded up with fuel fully rested recovered fully firing on all cylinders and that's just physically secondly you've got to remember for a sprinter so much of what they do is psychological it's they will hang on through i mean they do have and i know we hear sprinters often complain about three-week grand tours and how much they suffer and hurt it's generally true they suffer more than anybody else because the only reason they hang on much of the time is because if it's a flat final 10 Ks, there's a chance they're going to win. So most riders who couldn't make it will give up and let go. And But a sprinter's got to ca- carry on through thick and thin, through overclimb, mm. down descents, through crosswinds, in the blind in blind faith that they can make it to the finish and then turn on the gas. And they could have a day where they're just suffering like a dog all day. But if they get it and they can see the finish line, they can still punch out of it and go for the win. So it's a tortuous way to live a career because you spend most of your time banging your head against the wall, hoping you'll make it to the finish and stand that chance. And because of that, and a race when you got, especially you look at a race like Milan San Remo, the sprinters, because it is one of the few classics that you stand a chance of winning, they can spend a career preparing for it, you know, and training and adapting their body and their weight and their training and uh, the the type of preparation they do for it just to alter their body and their mindset for that one day. And we know Mark Cavendish has done it for Milan San Remo. So is Caleb Ewan, where they really focused a whole, yeah. not just one winter, but multiple seasons on that one race. So they come there, not only physically prepared, mm. but psychologically stronger and kind of more prepared for it than anything else, which just gives it, which they need to do in order to stand a chance of getting over those climbs. Mm. So I'd never underestimate just how much it takes, how much climbers put into themselves or take out of themselves to get over climbs and, and make it to the finish. Because although we see the glory bit at the end, generally they've been dropped. They've been had teams around them. They've mm. been at times even close to crying uh, in order to get to that point. Mm. So it's, it's a really interesting p- place in the sport because we generally only get to see the glory bit. A lot of it is um, pretty miserable for them. Mm. Caleb, I think Caleb Ewan's quite smart as well in that he knows when it's a forlorn prospect, doesn't he? And, you know, his, his body's telling him that. And I don't think he, he doesn't waste any efforts kind of unduly turning himself inside out just to hang on. He, so when he pulls a pin, he pulls it earlier than others and he just goes, nah, I'm on my own. And also he said to, you know, Roger Kluger and his lead-up guys, you crack on, you do, you know, and I'll just, I'm on my own now and I'll wait for the Grappetta to form. And he didn't, he didn't bother, he didn't bother expending unnecessary energy in that sense. Um, yeah. No, and it's this it reminds me of some things as well. It's Mark Cavendish from his early days. To go back to him because he's been the most visible at this. In in two thousand and eight, when he really came on the scene, in mm. two thousand and nine, it wasn't just a case of he get dropped and then have to suffer through. If Mark Cavendish got dropped, the whole race accelerated. So it yeah. wouldn't just be a chase back on. And a lot of the sprinters, they have that. It's, they're not just going to get, they know when they get dropped, it's not like most riders that get dropped and they can just yo-yo on and off and get back on again and wait for the peloton to slow down or bunch up a concertina effect. So those big sprinters, once they get dropped, they know the hammer goes down. 
it motivates, so it just motivates the bunch yeah yeah exactly it's going oh. on the radios cavendish has dropped caleb ewan's dropped oh. you know and nitsolo's dropped and then the teams get the riders in the front hear it's on the radio because that's part of their motivation yeah so everything starts to speed up so it's a it's a it's a hellish existence but you're right for for caleb ewan and, and all these sprinters they've really got to choose their days carefully and be absolutely committed to them and the other days they just turn it off yeah yeah oh by the way I think it was a lapwing, the bird. Oh, we had, yeah, there's some pictures of that had, on Twitter. Got we some had quite a lot of the bird that attacked me, yeah. I think, thanks very much, um, Twitter people. Um, that was, it was really good. I think it's a, yeah, a northern European lapwing or something like that, with a little cresty thing on the, on the head. Like that. It's, uh, yeah. it's the cresty thing Actually, that, that kind of gives it, the, gives it away as a, a, a real. I, well, it's the cresty, I think I it's. Picture it. it had such a rakish call. The bird call itself was such as an unusual, sort of slightly flamboyant, dandyish kind of a call that I think it's just. Can you give it to us again, Ned? Because I really, I no, really I enjoyed can, it yesterday. I, I fear, David, that if I tried, it would sound markedly different from how it sounded yesterday. So, because uh, <laughs> I can't quite remember, um, times have moved on. It's a grand tour. Um, I've forgotten about yesterday, and I'm all about today. Do you want to hear about today? Want I want to hear about today. Do you want to hear a little bit about today? We start, we've actually quite a long drive. It was a four hour transfer last night. Ugh. Motorway service station and all that sort of thing. Um, which That's is right. Quite, Italian motorway service stations are good. Yeah, it was quite good actually. Aren't they? It was quite good. Well, they've got, it's what they've pasta. got is, yeah, it, well, I, I'd already stocked up with one of those um, slabs of pizza, focaccia pizzas. Yeah. So I had that in, in the car already Lovely. prepped and ready to go because that's grand tour experience working there. Um, That's it. uh, But my co-commentator, Matt Stevens, had to stop and grab a sandwich. He was quite happy with it. He was quite happy with the quality of his sandwich. And while he did that, great thing about Italian service stations is I, um, they have quite a wide selection of toys. Um, Cars, actually. (laughs) I thought he said I I wouldn't have had a shower. (laughs) (laughs) I could have done it. It's quite well appointed. (laughs) No, they had lots of toy cars. I quite like toy cars. It's quite interesting. I hate cars, but I quite like toy cars. Go, go figure. I don't really understand that. Um, talking of which, weird. so we transferred into the next region we're in is Emilia Romagna, okay? Um, home to places like Brescia and uh, Bologna is in Emilia Romagna. It's, it's in Emilia Romagna, isn't it? Um, and also, isn't it the heart of the motor industry in Italy? Talking about cars, David? I'm reading Ducati, uh, Ferrari, Lamborghini, Modena. I said like Modena and yeah, Marinello. Modena. Maserati. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's Modena. Yeah. Yeah, so you're, yeah Modena, Marinello. Yeah, yeah. I'm not plucking this from thin air. I've yeah. read it. So I can confirm this is, this is true. Well, that's um, good. I've been but, to both And places. also a motor brand. This, I've just read it. I've never heard of them. What is Pagini? What's that? What's, no. Oh, yeah, they, Pagani. Pagani. Cars. Sorry, Pagani. Yeah, they're like these super crazy expensive cars, Ned. Are they? Okay. Um, we start today, the stage starts today in Piacenza, which is just a beautiful word, isn't it? And it's a very beautiful place. I've been there a Piacenza. couple of times. Piacenza. Um, home to Giorgio Armani. And, no, well, no. not anymore, because I think he's dead, isn't he? Is he dead? Giorgio Armani? Yeah, he's shot. What? Um, no, no, that was Versace, Gianni Versace was shot. Giorgio Armani's still alive. Is he? Gianni Versace's dead. Okay. Again, out of my comfort zone. Cars and clothes. <laughs> <laughs> but Giorgio Armani was born in, Giorgio Armani was dead I don't know I don't know yeah. Twitter who's, who's Giorgio Armani dead um, uh, he was born in Piacenza and someone who's very much not dead um, but um, also George 
Giorgia Bronzini, the former world champion and the director sportif of, um, or directeurs sportive of um, Trek Sacrifier, is from Piacenza. The last time there was a sprint finish in Piacenza was in 1986, and the sprint was won by Guido Bontempi, ahead of um, two riders, Eric van der Aden, I've got a little story about him, I'm going to tell you in a second, and uh, Stefano Allocchio. And Stefano Allocchio is currently the Giro race director. So he's the chap who um, waves it off uh, when the uh, ah, kilometre zero and drop, drops a flag and all that sort of thing. Now, my Eric van der Aden story uh, is... Uh, relates to Donald Trump. Ooh, in so ni- it's a Tour de Trump. Tour de Trump. The first edition was in nineteen eight, I think nineteen eighty nine, and Eric van der Aden. Um, it ended in Atlantic City. It's ten stages long. Um, quite good prize money and everything, but it ended in Atlantic City with an individual time trial that kind of took in all the big Trump assets in Atlantic City. So, nice. um, you know, the Trump Towers and the Trump Hotel and the Trump this and the Trump that and past the Trump golf course and whatever. And it finished outside the Trump Casino in Atlantic City down on the waterfront. Right? And um, waterfront? Does it have a waterfront? I just made that up. Um, Atlantic City. Atlantic anyway. City. Yeah. Atlantic. Uh, oh, yeah. It does have a, yeah. Clues in the name, right? Yeah. It's Atlantic it, City. Yeah. Is it on the coast? I'm guessing. One would think it's on the Atlantic coast. Mate, there's a lot of floating facts in this episode, isn't there? <laughs> a lot of floating facts. got science fact-checking. But yeah. Eric, Eric yeah. van der Aden was, um, was going really well in the, in the individual time trial, and he would have won it quite possibly had he not been sent the wrong way. He followed a, a, a motorbike that went the wrong way and took him off the course, and he lost 30 seconds or something like that. So it all went badly wrong for Eric van der Aden. And it's quite a big... It's quite a big deal not winning the Tour de Trump because the prize money was substantial. It was a really big race. Um, anyway, he's a phleg- he was a phlegmatic kind of a guy, Eric van der Aden. And apparently, and I have this from Dag Otto Lauritsen, who told me this, right? who was in the race and actually ended up winning it. Dag Otto won the Tour de Trump. Right? Beca- Dag Otto, no way. Because, I think it's one of his biggest wins, actually, because um, van der Aden, partly because van der Aden took the wrong turn. right? Actually, no, it wasn't. Dagotto who told me this. It was John Herity who told me this. Right? Wow. John, John Herity was a young director sportif of a British team that was at, in the Tour de Trump. And he said, what I remember from that race, Ned, is we went to the Trump Casino that evening and Eric van der Aden went up to, having lost in these kind of like miserably unfortunate circumstances, the race, went up to a fruit machine, stuffed a dollar in it and won the jackpot. <laughs> Are you serious? He won. I think he won ten thousand dollars, which was more than the, which was more than the prize money that he missed out on um, back in oh, nineteen eighty nine. Amazing! Isn't that a great story? That's awesome. That's a great story. Why is that not a better known? Anyway, that kind great of great outfit for the casino. Yeah, it's it, um, that strays quite uh, far from Piacenza, where the race uh, starts today. It's one hundred eighty-seven kilometers. Got a bunch of categorized climbs and a hard, long climb. Uh, possibly a summit finish, you could argue, up to a thousand meters uh, today <laughs> to Sestola, um, which we're in the northern Apennines now, and on the slopes of uh, uh, Monte Cimone, the highest peak in the northern Apennines. And uh, Sestola has been used quite often as a stage finish in the Giro d'Italia, most recently in 2016, when a very young Giulio Ciccone riding for Bardiani uh, won the stage from a breakaway. I think he was like 20 at the time. Uh, possibly so that's when he really kind of like 
uh, forged his reputation, Giulio Ciccone, and a couple of years before that, Peter Veining won on this climb. Um, and there's uh, there's a there's a medieval castle, fortified castle at the top to admire, and it's a proper kind of Dungeons and Dragons type castle on a rock, you know, properly kind of medieval. And, you know. So, so am I right in <laughs> hearing you've changed this from an uphill finish to a summit finish? I'm toying with the idea. I'll confirm it a bit later when I it's drizzling with rain, but I think I'll still go out and I'll try and run up the, the rest of the climb, and then I will let you know whether this is a summit finish or an uphill finish, David. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 